This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, it's a pleasure to be here. If you have uh, questions as you study God's word or you're looking for a biblical uh, guidance to some challenge or a problem you're facing or a ministry uh, job that God has given you, feel free to call us again locally. The number is 843-525-1859. The South Carolina 843 number is 525-1859. You can call us toll free for our internet listeners if you prefer at 877. The call letters WAGP. 980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you uh, call us, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, a lot of people just dictate their question to Deb, who takes the phone calls, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, as always, it's good to be here. Let's go ahead and we'll, we'll jump in. I think we have some email questions that have come. We do, and uh, we've got Jamie from Buford who wrote uh, that she is working on a Bible study at home and doesn't understand why did God judge everything and not just mankind? For example, why the animals as well? And also, can you please explain why in the Old Testament did everything need to be clean that involved a sacrifice because of the contact? Was it because of the contact with sinful people? Those are some great questions that uh, Jamie writes us to today. So let me respond. I'm going to turn here to the book of Genesis. And her first question is, you know, okay, I understand God destroyed the world. Why did he kill all the animals too? Um, and, it, and it's a fair question. And uh, let me respond by reading here Genesis chapter six in verse um, seven. It says, and the Lord said, and Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky. For I am sorry that I have made them. So understand, of course, that when God created man, we are distinctly different from the animal world. Uh, The scripture says that we're created in his image, male and female. He created them. Uh, The Bible says that God breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life and man became a living soul, living spirit. And that's how we're different from animals. Uh, God made us in his image. You never see a dog or a cat on their knees in prayer or worshiping God. Only people do that. We're not some uh, highly evolved animal. We are distinctly different. In fact, God gave us rule over the animals. But there came a time, obviously, in human history where evil was so widespread and had grown and just multiplied that God said that he was sorry that he had made man. And so he was going to destroy the world. This was actually a historical event that took place. And he killed the animals with it. I mean, think about it. There's some guy hiding in some cave. Uh, There's some guy hiding in some mountaintop, wherever you may be. 
God is going to deal with you. And the judgment of God is inescapable. So that's going to automatically mean that the animals are going to go with man. God's not cruel towards the animals any more than he was cruel towards those he judged in the great flood. God gave man an opportunity to repent and man chose not to repent. And so on the day the flood came, only eight persons in all were actually saved. Noah, Mrs. Noah, his three sons and their three wives, no one else. Now, during the hundred plus years when Noah was building the ark, there were probably people who were saved. In fact, we know there were some people who were believers. Uh, Methuselah, who was the oldest man who ever lived 968 years. He uh, died the year of the great flood. In fact, his name meant when he dies, it shall come. It's kind of an odd name. It's a compound name in Hebrew, but when he dies, it shall come. And the year he died was the year the great flood came upon the whole world. And it was a prophecy that God had given. And God uh, tells us in the book of second Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so you don't learn that in the old Testament. So as he was banging that hammer, uh, he was preaching and he was warning people of their need to repent. And so of course, uh, God brought this great flood and it killed all the men uh, who were lost. And with the exception again of eight and all the animals, everything which has breath in it, God destroyed. Now there were some animals obviously that were preserved and there were, <laughs> excuse me, eight people that were preserved. But that was it because of choices that man had made. And I'm sure a lot of the fish life died too. Obviously, those Noah wasn't instructed to bring uh, fish into the ark. There was no need to. But I think there probably would have been a drastic difference if you were a diver, so to speak, before the great flood and after the flood. You'd say, what happened? Uh, there'd still be fish, but a lot of them were wiped out just in the churning and the turning of the water and, you know, being thrown against mountains. The highest mountain was uh, a, a number of cubits under underwater, 15 cubits underneath the waters. So even some of the fish life would have died. In fact, uh, there are uh, some sharks that we have never seen, but we have found some of their fossils that are really pretty unique. Uh, we have a, a guy in our church who's a diver and he found the single biggest shark's tooth ever found. And uh, he sold it for $10,000 on the shark's tooth. He dug out of the river. And uh, I think that person sold it for $30,000, if I understood his uh, story correctly. But it, it measured seven inches across the top. Uh, now, I have some big shark's teeth that he blessed me with once. But uh, this one was just absolutely, incredibly big. And so a lot of animals were fossilized during that time and were destroyed, even some of the fish life as well. So God is a good God. He's not cruel. God is a patient God. He's long suffering and he gave man a chance, but man chose to disobey and to ignore God's warning. So anyway, oh, in reference to your second half of the question here concerning cleansing. Yeah, there's a lot of cleansing. I suppose you could call it ritual, though I'm a little cautious to use that word because it was part of obedience. It was more than ritual. It was an act of obedience. And it was God shouting through all the various ways in which a person had to be cleansed, their houses, their utensils, everything, that man is sinful, that there is a problem. 
And again, that's an expression of God's grace. Even when God allowed the creation to fall with Adam, when Adam sinned, uh, not only did all of humanity fall, but all of creation with humanity fell. Had God left Adam in a garden of Eden, some of his uh, offspring might think, well, there's really not a problem. This place is beautiful. I don't, I don't see the problem. And so death enters into the creation realm as well. And with it, all the problems that we have in the creation. And again, it's God putting man on notice that there is a huge problem. And God was doing the same through the Jewish people. There is a problem. There's a need for cleansing. And this is a whole sermon in itself. But we could look at some of the specifics of the cleansing that God gave. And many of them point to the Messiah himself and what he would do and how he would accomplish it. Others of those things were means by which God distinguished his people. Under the old covenant, God distinguished his people externally. Under the new covenant, God distinguishes his people internally. So even the food, some were declared clean, some were unclean. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. And again, God was distinguishing his people that way. But under the new covenant, through the second birth, he does it in a different fashion. But the biggest thing with all the cleansing commands in the Old Testament is God shouting, there's a problem. And when the problem is fixed by the Lord Jesus at the cross, God lifted those cleansing commands, not because he has changed, but the way he now deals with his people has changed. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And the person dictated their question a few minutes ago. They'd like to know if you have any messages on the promises of God. Um, I'm sure I do. Uh, Many times I will teach a passage of Scripture where there's a specific promise. And um, there have been sermons when I've distinguished in people's minds the difference between what we call an unconditional promise and a conditional promise. And I've done that, you know, in a lot of sermons over the years. So I can't say, well, this one or that one, but if you listen long enough, but here's the main uh, takeaway. Understand that when you look at a promise, and I just did a sermon in the last six months, but uh, maybe I'll think of it here, which one it was. But as you read the promises of God, you will discover that some of those promises are specific. They're given to maybe a nation or possibly to an individual or to a group of individuals. And those are not yours necessarily to claim. When, when, when God gives a promise to the Jewish people that in three days you will cross the Jordan River, uh, that's a specific promise given in a specific context. That's not for us to claim. There are other promises that are restated in the New Testament. For instance, in the Decalogue, when God spoke to the people of Israel, He said, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that's attached to it, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. So that is a promise initially contextually given to uh, followers of the God of Israel. And the land he's referring to, of course, is the land of Israel. Now under the new covenant, God has an international community of people who aren't represented just physically in Israel, but across the planet. And so God takes that promise. It's quoted in Ephesians six, but it's restated that you may live long on the earth because now God's people are not localized, but they're everywhere. Uh, There are some promises that are conditional in nature, some that are unconditional. God promises that when the Lord shall 
come from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them in the air. That's an unconditional promise. It's going to happen no matter what. If you are a saved person, your loved one's bodies are going to come out of the grave, and those who are alive when that event happens, we call it the catching up of the church, uh, the rapture, uh, the word rapture is not found in the English Bible. It's found in the Latin Bible used for over a thousand years. The harpazo uh, in Greek uh, will be caught up. God's going to do that. It has nothing to do with you. There are other promises that are very conditional. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. That is a conditional promise. You have to be abide, abiding in Christ and his word needs to be abiding in you. And then you can ask whatever you wish and it will be accomplished for you. So there's conditional, unconditional promises. And then there are promises that are given to specific people. Some that are very broad in nature for anyone to claim. Anyway, I hope that helps. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Hey, how you doing, Pastor Brooks? Doing well. Thank you. Thanks for calling. How can we be of help? Yeah, I had a question. Um, uh, it's something that I believe is a false doctrine that I've seen teach uh, as of late. Uh, it's it's uh, a thing with African Americans saying that they are uh, the lost tribe of Israel and that the uh, individuals over there that's uh, taking over the, the slaves in Israel now are not true Israel. And um, sometimes they have Bible verses to sort of kind of back it up. Uh, uh, one is uh, Deuteronomy uh, 6 3. 28, I believe, uh, Revelation 3 and 20, uh, I'm sorry, 3 and, 3 and 2, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I'm just trying to get some information to combat against that, because I do believe it's a false doctrine. And I was wondering, have y'all heard of the teaching being taught anywhere? Well, it's not a new teaching. Um, it's often called British Israeliism. Uh, and so different races of people have claimed it for their own. And so uh, this hasn't happened in a long, long time in England since a uh, queen or a king has been officially ordained, so to speak, as the monarch representing the people because the current queen's been there for 60 years. But when it happens, they actually take out a rock, which they actually claim was the rock that uh, Jacob laid his head on when he slept. Maybe when Queen Elizabeth is dead, we'll see that rock again, and it hasn't been done in over 60 years. But there is a theology called British Israelism that says, well, the, the British people, uh, white Anglo-Saxons, are the, represent the lost tribes of Israel. It's sheer nonsense. It just as it would be sheer nonsense for some race, African-American or any people to say, we represent the lost tribes of Israel. Number one, they weren't lost to God. Now, it is true that there came a time in Israel's history when the kingdom divided into 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. And the 10 northern tribes uh, at that point are called Israel. Prior to that, the whole 12 were called Israel. So it's important as you read that are we talking about a united kingdom where they're all Israel or once the kingdom is divided? If the term Israel is during the time of the divided kingdom that happens after Solomon through his son Rehoboam, then we're talking about the 10 northern tribes and the two <laughs> southern tribes are known as Judah after the larger of the two, Judah and Benjamin. With that said, some have said, well, we, we, we know about the two southern tribes, but the other 10 are lost. That's not true. Uh, for instance, when we come to the opening chapters of Luke, 
we read of a lady who comes, who's in the temple and she had been there a long time waiting because God had given her a promise, just like he had given to Simeon. God had given a promise to Anna and we discover she's from the tribe of Asher. That's one of the 10 Northern tribes. So the tribes are not lost and they're certainly not lost to God. And we do know in Revelation seven, it's not in Revelation two or three. Those are the, that's the address to the seven churches. But in Revelation seven, um, God says, and, uh, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah. And he names the various 12 tribes, 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. Now, again, it's true that today there are people in Israel, most Israelis, even Orthodox Israelis, do not know what tribe they are from. I have a friend who's a, he's really become a close friend. He's an Orthodox rabbi and we communicate on a regular basis. He's not saved yet, but I'm hoping and praying that he is coming to faith. He's uh, reading, he's studying, he's asking me questions. Uh, In either case, um, he would concur with what I'm about to say that most Levites know if they are from the tribe of Levi because of the specificity of their names would indicate, yeah, he's a Levite. So in Israel, for instance, there's a group called the Temple Institute and the Temple Institute are largely people from the tribe of Levi who are committed to rebuilding the temple and they've remanufactured all of the needed equipment that would go in the temple, the priestly robes, everything. And added to that, they have Levites who they believe should be those who serve as priests in the temple when it's rebuilt. So they would acknowledge at least at the minimum, people can say, no, I'm from the tribe of Levi. And again, God's setting the stage, but it will all come to fruition uh, during this time we call the great tribulation. And of course, we'll be studying this in the book of Revelation. But it rooted behind this false doctrine that this brother raises is a wrong view of the people of Israel. And so there are people who have thought, and there are some popular speakers today who think the church is the new Israel. A John Piper, I love him. He has the gospel. Well, you know, we're going to spend eternity in heaven and I think he'll be straightened out then. But uh, he thinks the church is the new Israel. R.C. Sproul, another reformed thinker. He thinks we're the new Israel. It comes out of John Calvin's theology, which comes out of Roman Catholic theology. And the thought comes out of Augustine. And so Augustine taught that because the Jewish people were unbelieving that God had replaced them with the church. Well, he hasn't replaced Israel. God is going to use the people of Israel to bring about the second coming, just as he used them to bring about the first coming. But it's basically that doctrine, which actually led to the silent pulpits in Germany that helped feed the great Holocaust that the Jewish people experienced. And it's a very sad thing to, to, to consider, but there, unfortunately today, I would say now the majority of pulpits in America don't even teach God's unique role for the people of Israel, but God is going to pull it off and he's going to do it through the Jewish people. But it is a false doctrine for some group to say, well, we're, we're the lost tribes of Israel. No, we're not. God made some unconditional promises to the Jewish people. And if you want to study this um, and really be grounded to defend this, then go to searchthescriptures.org, click on the book of Romans 
and listen to my sermons out of Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's the national section of the book of Romans, and it deals with Israel. We go back and we look at the Abrahamic covenant that wasn't conditioned on Israel's faithfulness. Abraham was asleep when God cut those animals in half, and and he, the Lord, walks through the animals because it's a unilateral covenant. It doesn't have anything to do with Israel. God's going to pull it off, kind of like what we talked about earlier in the prior question. It's an unconditional promise that God makes to the people of Israel. It's not conditioned on their obedience. Now, the Jewish people are going to come to faith. It's going to happen, um, and it will happen in a whole scale way. It's happening today. Uh, Jew and Gentile are members of the church. We have some Jewish people in our own fellowship, um, but it will happen in a broad scale way when as a nation, they're going to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. Indeed. Yes. Uh, Laurie from the great state of Maine writes, uh, do you believe it is possible for God to give the gift of seeing evil spirits or demons attached to people? Also, do you believe it's scriptural for a pastor to say that he's been given the gift of seeing these demons? Uh, the reason for my questions, my boyfriend recently brought into his home a man from Pakistan who has received a religious asylum in this country. He claims to have been given this gift of seeing demons. He also said that he's been given the gift of putting hands on people and being able to know their sins. I'm very concerned. Well, you ought to be concerned. It sounds like he's gone a little too far. Now, there is a spiritual gift. We call it the gift of discernment, but te- technically the text reads the, di- the gift of discerning spirits. And there's a sense in which all Christians are to be discerning. And so, as I've brought out many times in our spiritual gifts course, and right now we're doing a series on pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But as you grow up in Christ, you grow in your ability to discern. When the writer of the Hebrews um, writes a group of people, he says, these Jewish believers concerning him, him being Melchizedek, uh, that uh, Abraham met, who is a type or a picture of, of the Lord Jesus. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you, and you is plural, you could say in Southern English, you all ought to be teachers, you all have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, for you have come to need milk and not solid food. So they should have matured, but they hadn't. And then he makes this statement for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is a babe, but solid food is for the mature. Now the term milk is used in a couple different ways. Peter will speak of longing for the pure milk of the word. He's not talking about baby food there. He's just talking about the purity, the unadulterated purity of God's holy word. And every Christian should long for it as a baby longs for milk. Here he's using the term milk in deference to to strong meat, so to speak. You don't feed a baby steak. You feed them milk and eventually they graduate to a padlum and eventually to solid food. And so he's making that analogy here. He, He said, you should have been past some of the milk truths of the Bible and have matured. So he says, but solid food, Hebrews 5.14, is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So with the non-sign gifts in the Bible, there are sign gifts, healing, miracles, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Then there are the non-sign gifts, 
teaching, evangelism, mercy, administration, helps, and one of them is discerning spirits. And with all the non-signed gifts in the New Testament, there's a corresponding responsibility that every Christian has. So while um, God calls me as a pastor, teacher, has gifted me in that way, uh, there's a sense in which every Christian is instructed to be a teacher. Uh, not to serve in the office like I do, let not many of you become teachers, and you can't control what spiritual gift God gives you, but there's a sense in which he says here, you all ought to be teachers. He's speaking to the congregation of Hebrew people that you should have matured enough so that there are some basic questions that you could answer for people. And that's part of the great commission that wasn't given just to 11 men, but to the whole church, go make disciples, converts of all peoples, baptizing them, then teaching them all that I taught you. So I say all that to say this, there's a sense in which every Christian has the ability to be discerning. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist sometime to figure out if someone's demonically um, being led. Uh, Rick had a phone call here years ago. Remember that phone call, Rick? All too well. Did you want to share anything from it? Well, it was this uh, woman, and uh, I took the call, and uh, it, she started talking. And uh, in the course of conversation, um, I was sharing the gospel with her, and this um, voice that was totally different from the, the woman's uh, came out, uh, and it was said something along the lines of, Leave her alone. <laughs> I mean, right, right, it sent right, chills right. up my up my spine, and uh, well, I'll let you take it from there. Well, then Rick said, "Here's a lady who's looking for help," so I ended up calling her. And um, as it turns out, you know, she spoke all these. I mean, in the course of the conversation, it went from you know pure English to uh, Arabic to French to uh, German, and this lady wasn't you know multilingual. She was actually inhabited by demons. And interestingly, in the book of Daniel, as we studied, there are demons that represent different regions. And she obviously had multiple demons in her. I, I lay all that aside to say it didn't take a rocket scientist to know that these not only languages, but these different voices that were expressed through this woman's mouth, uh, that she was demon possessed. So as, but I will say that there are some people in the body of Christ who um, are given a ministry of discerning spirits where maybe there's a heightened sensitivity to that. Just like there are, uh, there's a responsibility for everyone to do the work of an evangelist. Some have a heightened ability to do that. Every Christian ought to mature enough where he can teach basic doctrine. In fact, it's a requirement for an elder because it's an expression of maturity and an elder can't be a new convert unless he be conceited. Um, yet there are some people who have a heightened ability to do that because of the way God gifted them. So I don't know anything about your friend from Pakistan. One, the big question I would have is one, is he a born again Christian? Does he even know the gospel? Cause there are people who operate in the demonic realm and they come like the devil and display themselves as an angel of light. So I would ask some hard Christians and what makes me really like skeptical right off is that this guy then goes beyond and he says, well, I can tell what sins are in your life. Well, you can't read the heart. Only God can read the heart and and he can lay hands on you and God's going to speak to him and says, this person has this sin or that sin. No, 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 no. That's like this guy's way off track now. So you ought to be concerned. And so sometimes 
when you're dealing with people and you're not sure about error in one area, sometimes the error will show up in another area. And so for this guy to go around and be junior Holy Spirit and to tell people what sins are going on in their life, he's taking the role that is unique to the Lord God. Um, Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart and only God can judge the thoughts and the intentions of the mind, Uh, not, not, not humans. So anyway, but now we can go by what people say because the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. Uh, but we can't cross over that line into the role that is unique to the Lord God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. Uh, we got a call a minute ago from a listener who would like to know if you have any recommendations for raising girls for first-time Christian parents. Well, I would probably direct you to my wife's website. Actually, it was a particular book that they were looking for. Oh, I see. I would recommend you to my wife's website. Uh, mothering from the heart and she has uh, some series on raising young boys and also raising young women that's where i would start um going to be very very practical the other thing i would say is we are planning to teach a course uh, we hope it's going to happen in this calendar year in the fall on parenting biblical parenting and we will take it from birth through the teenage years. And we'll also have some focus on some things that are unique to young ladies, some things that are unique to young men and uh, how we as parents can, can lead them. So there's a lot of hokey stuff out there on presses, unfortunately, that is more, I don't know, Christian psychobabble than it is solid biblical truth. So um, I don't know of any right now that are in print that are exceptional uh, but when I teach that course, I'm sure there'll be some recommendations I'll be making. There were some good books that are out of print, but let's go on. All right. And uh, her address, by the way, is AudreyBrogi.com, A-U-D-R-E-Y-B-R-O-G-G-I. All right. Uh, partial birth abortion and abortion and its justification based on the health of the mother is the topic of our next letter. This listener would like your thoughts on a lady who counsels women at her church, uh, said that women... Pray with their families to choose partial birth abortion because the doctor said her life is in danger and she had to consider the future of her other children already born and dependent on her care. This writer says, I don't know if the mother in question uh, are single mothers. Therefore, they chose to abort the new baby in order to preserve their health and life in order to care for their remaining children. What are your thoughts on that? Well, God's word is clear. Abortion is wrong. It's wrong. It's the taking of an innocent life. And there are a number of passages and texts that affirm that clear biblical teaching. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5 talks about how God called him from his mother's womb. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5 in Psalm 139. Let me just turn there because I don't want to misquote it. But it's a great psalm that speaks of God's providential care from the moment of uh, conception to the end of our life when we are even laid in a grave somewhere for thou dost form my inward parts, thou dost know, thou dost weave me together in my mother's womb, for I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not yet one." So again, very clearly you see um, God's providential care over the human life, weaving that child together 
in the mother's womb. Uh, a French company years ago, I remember seeing it in the 1980s. Um, I don't know how they did it in terms of the um, the mechanics of it, but they put a, uh, a, 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 a camera in a mother's womb that filmed the formation of the baby over the course of months. And it was a big pro-life film. I'm sure you could Google it and find it online, but it's really breathtaking to see the process and, and, and how it looks almost like a weaving process when God creates and makes that little child in the womb. Uh, King David writes in Psalm 22, upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou has been my God from my mother's womb. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Uh, he's not talking about <laughs> fetal tissue or a blob. Uh, a fetus. He's talking about a baby. And interestingly, when you come into the New Testament passages like Luke 1, 41 to 44, the word that God uses for life in their womb, brephos, that we translate as baby, is the identical Greek word that God uses to describe the baby after the child is born. Paul, likewise, like Jeremiah, can say that God appointed him uh, from his mother's womb. God doesn't appoint blobs of tissue he appoints people. So big question, when does life begin? The Bible is very clear at the moment of conception. That's why King David in Psalm 51.5 can identify his guilt from the moment of conception. Uh, I was guilty when my mother conceived me. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Why? Because life starts at the moment of conception. Okay, with that said, and that's the big question, and, and many times you can reason with people and say, well, let me ask you, the day before a baby is born, is that child a real baby? Well, yeah. Well, how do you know? Well, the mother could have had the baby five days early and the child would have been born alive. Okay, so you admit that a day before the child is born, the child's a real baby. Yes, I admit that. Well, Hillary Clinton didn't admit it. Neither did her husband, Bill, when he... Um, uh, rejected partial birth abortion and, you know, it was voted out uh, against the law, but they didn't have enough people because, you know, people want to, um, a lot of these Democrats, but some Republicans too, you know, they want to be uh, the right for a woman to, to care for her own body. Look, we don't have um, some rights that we have total freedom. I can't run into a theater and shout fire. I don't have a right to do that. That's not a freedom of speech right. That's a felony and it's against the law. And I don't have a right over my body if that's a separate human being. And so what's ironic is in some hospitals, you can have a, a woman going in, you know, six months pregnant and she's having difficulty and they do everything they can to preserve the baby's life. And in the same hospital, sometimes another woman can go in and she wants her baby to be murdered, to be killed. So in the partial birth abortion, they delivered the baby feet first instead of head first. And before the head came through the birth channel, they would remove the brains, crush the skull, and put a dead baby on the table. And the reason they had to use this methodology that Bill Clinton said he was in favor of, and many Democrats say they are in favor of it, was because uh, they had live birth abortions. We had a lady who came to Hilton Head some years back, and she was the product of an abortion, but she, she survived it. And she was the speaker that year for the pro-life banquet. So uh, it's an evil. And so when we're talking about the life of the mother, and there are some very, 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 very rare situations. Uh, when C. Everett Koop was the Surgeon General of the United States, he said he had never, ever seen 
a situation where the mother's life was at risk. Uh, there are some, you know, unique situations uh, in ectopic pregnancy and other things where maybe the mother's life is at risk. But we're talking about less than 1% of 1% of all abortions in America. So the, the problem with the Supreme Court ruling is they define it as the health of the mother, not the life of the mother, but the health of the mother. And so the health of the mother could be her psychological health. It could be her financial health. Very broad how you want to apply that so that you can have legalized murder. Look, the Supreme Court was wrong before. There was a ruling in the Supreme Court in the 1800s where they said black people weren't people. They were, they were property. I mean, that was an evil decision. And it was just as evil when Roe v. Wade. And let me just say, while we're on the subject today, uh, there is a bill this week, this week in South Carolina, that is, um, you know, a bill that every Christian needs to be concerned for. And it will protect children in South Carolina 20 weeks and above. It's called the dismemberment bill. I don't have the House number in front of me, but it's going to be voted on the House this week. And you should call your representative. Uh, I called my representative this morning, Samuel Rivers, and uh, I didn't get him, but I got his secretary and I, you know, I was very respectful and I just said, you know, I, I just want your know, representative Rivers to know that this week he's going to have the opportunity to vote on a bill that is very important to me. And as the pastor of my church, I said, I think it's very important to my people that they don't want innocent life taken. And of course, uh, I remember when the um, bill some time back was being blocked in a committee in the House by a state senator who is also my senator. I called him two weeks before Senator Pinckney, and he gave me all these reasons why. I said, look, you're a pastor of a church. And I said, when I called your secretary, because it took me forever to get you, um, she said, oh, there's no way our pastor would, would want abortion, you know, little babies to be, to be killed. And when I told him that, I said, look, you, you've, you've convoluted the thinking of your own people. You know, they, they think you're pro-life, but you are the one on that committee who have been stopping this bill. And it's an evil. And you, you need to recognize, I said, if you are truly a man of God, I said, this is an evil that you are promoting. You are stopping the protection of innocent life in this state. And one of the reasons he said, well, what if a woman's a product of a rape? You know, she has a baby, a product of a rape. Doesn't she have a right? I said, look, 20 weeks and above, she would have known for months that she was pregnant. And uh, if she had been raped, she would have known for months and she would have had plenty of time. And the sad thing is, I hope that man knew the Lord. Some insane kid walked into his church and killed that pastor and nine, eight other people. It was an evil beyond evil. But what I'm trying to say is this is an important bill. And if you're a Christian, you should call your, your house representative. It's not in the state Senate. It's in the house. It's your house rep. And if you don't know how to find them, uh, you could go to South Carolina government uh, and there'll be a place on there. How do I find my representative? And you click on it. You basically type in your name, your street number, your zip code, and it will pull up the name of your representative and the phone number. You should call and just say, hey, look, I'm, um, uh, I'm very concerned. You have an opportunity this week to vote. And I hope you will vote in favor of life. And look, when you get a call, when you're a state representative and you get a call, they, they never call. People most, for the most part never call. 
I mean, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of bills and things they pass where they never get a single phone call. When they get 30 or 40 phone calls just to their office, wow, that really rings their bell. And they know people are watching. And I just said to him, I said, I'm very concerned. And I said, I know what's happened in the past with some of our state representatives. And I said, they'll not vote so they don't have to identify themselves where they stand on this issue. They just don't vote or just don't show up or they vote, you know, against life. And I said, if my state rep doesn't vote or votes against it, I said, I promise you, I will do everything in my power uh, and with my influence to see that he is not elected again. And this is an evil that has come upon our nation. And this is an evil that's upon our state. And if you're a Christian, you should, before this day is over, just go to the South Carolina government. If you don't know the name of your representative and your phone, his phone number, you get online today and find it. And there's a place where you can identify by your street name. You can't go by your zip code because the way they draw the lines, it's, it's quirky. Um, but you should find out who they are and call them and respectfully let them know that you're watching and listening and praying that they will protect life. All right. Very good. And that is Bill H3548. Okay. Say it again. H3548. 3548, House Bill. All right. It's going to be voted on this week, sometime between Wednesday and Friday. Mm -hmm. So today's the day to call. All right. Terrific. Our next caller uh, would like to know why you think it is wrong for a Christian to meet with a medium. Well, uh, simply because God commands against it. Uh, God has some very clear and firm words about communicating through uh, a medium. Um, There are many passages that I could direct you to in Leviticus and in other passages, but um, God, God's clear that we're not to be involved in, in divination or witchcraft or anything like that. Um, you could look up Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. That might be useful to you where God directly addresses this issue. Um, you could look at uh, Isaiah 47, let's see, verse 13. That might be helpful to you. Uh, you could look up. Jeremiah 23, verses 25 to 27. So God's very, very clear that divination is a a form of evil magic where you're actually entering into the demonic realm. Now, certainly there are people out there who are quote unquote mediums and they're just tricksters, but a lot of them are not tricksters. They have actually opened themselves up into the demonic realm and they are communicating with demons. You think it's by accident that police departments sometimes in solving murders have gone to mediums? Listen, the devil came to kill and to destroy and to steal. And so what have they done? They have taken uh, some of these people who are involved with demons and they've gone to speak to them. And since they're engaged in the demonic realm, sometimes they can solve murders. Now that's an evil. It's a wicked thing. And God warns against it. But the reason they're able to have this insight is because they're operating in the demonic realm. And God speaks very, very clearly in Leviticus, for instance, 19. I gave you some other passages. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. 
So God's very, very clear. And along with some of the other passages, about 10 I could give you, but I hope that will get you started. And you can cross-reference them when you go, if you have a Bible with marginal references, and you should have one if you don't. Um, and you can go out in the margin. So you could just, I just quoted, for instance, from Leviticus 19 and verse 26. And the verse in the NASB, New American Standard Bible, is divided into sections. And the B section says not to practice divination or soothsaying. And if you went onto the margin and you looked at verse 26 and you looked at B, it would also direct you to Deuteronomy 18.10. That's one of the passages I quoted. And then I didn't quote this one, 2 Kings 17.17. That would be another good example. And you could then go to those passages and you could also go out into the margin of that and find you, before you know it, you'd have 20 passages that deal with this subject of divination and the evil behind it. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. Good morning. I have a quick question. I'm not sure if Pastor Brody's going to want to answer it or not, but I see that there's a group, and I don't want to mention who it is, but they're doing a family cruise on a Disney cruise line. And and I don't understand how a religious group or a Christian group, really, can do a cruise on a Disney cruise line with the things that Disney is now standing for. That really confuses me. So am I wrong to think that way? I mean... Well, it's, it's a fair question, and it's a good question. I, I think if you carry that thinking logically to other cruise lines, there's Carnival and Royal Caribbean and others, and you could also reason from those cruise lines, well, um, you know, the Carnival cruises, you know, they're, they're big, drunken, adulterous parties, and they are. I mean, it's kind of scary. I saw something on 2020, three or four years ago, and we are on vacation, and I don't have cable, but we saw this spot and it was on cruise lines and it just looked like one big drunken party. And they're talking about security on the cruise lines and women who are raped. And, but it was for the most part, a drunken adulterous orgy. It was just pathetic. Uh, so somebody might say, well, why would I want to support that cruise line? Well, if you carry that far enough, then why would I want to go to a restaurant that, uh, serves alcohol? Uh, and helps make people drunk. And so there comes a point where you can't totally separate yourself. Um, But Disney obviously might be a little different in your thinking, and I can understand why, because unlike uh, Carnival and Royal Caribbean, they take a very forthright stance in favor of, you know, the LGBTQ lifestyle. And, of course, if you go there, we had a Marine in our church some years ago, and he actually played in the Marine band, and I said, well, what do you do before you go in, went in the Marine Corps? Because you said you've only been in four years and you look like you maybe had some time. Yeah, actually, he said, I worked for Disney, my wife and I. We're both Marines and we both uh, play in the Marine Corps band. And um, But we worked for Disney. I said, what was that like? They said, just like, it's unbelievable. He said, we felt so out of place and so awkward. He said, but we know God had us there as a witness But Dan was telling me that uh, the place was just covered over with uh, gay people who were in their leadership and employed by them. And I I, I remember I said, well, that was kind of my sense because we went to Disney with my children. I think it was back in 91. It was the last time I went. We spent all this money. And we waited in line all day. It's just, you know, on a pastor's salary. And uh, I thought, man, this is a waste of money. We, you stand in line for an hour and then the ride's over in three minutes. You go stand in another line for an hour and we spent all this money. But in the middle of the day, they had some kind of a parade. And I said to my wife, I said, this is a gay parade. I said, it's obvious that so many of these people, by their mannerisms, 
are homosexual. Of course, uh, Dan confirmed it to me that day. He said, Pastor, you got it, man. That, that is where it is. So, so yeah, they're a little more open and forthright in terms of their stance. And so I would be reluctant if I were a Christian pastor and wanted to run a cruise to want to put money in the pocket of an organization that is openly, blatantly evil. I mean, they're all evil in some respects, but which is the lesser of the evils? And maybe Disney comes right at the top. So I can appreciate your spirit on that. Ultimately, is an issue of conscience and what the Lord wants you to do. Because there are issues where you cannot totally separate. Do you have your money in a bank? Someone says, well, yeah, I do. Well, what if that bank gave a loan to Planned Parenthood? Oh, gee, I hadn't thought about that. Well, uh, does that mean you don't put your money in the bank? Um, bankers have always been involved in good and evil loans. Uh, Jesus said in a parable, and he said, you can put your money in the bank. In fact, he's, you should have. He said, you could have at least gotten a little interest for me, uh, as the parable teaches. Anyway, good question. All right, very good. We've got a few minutes left. If you've got a question on today's Bible line, you may call 843-525-1859. Abe from Beaufort writes, in Genesis 6, it appears that both angels and humans sinned, yet God punishes humanity when he says that is his spirit will not always dwell with man. Nowhere in that scripture are angels punished. Please explain this. Thanks. Well, uh, from Genesis 6, it's an interesting passage of scripture. Let me just turn there because not everyone listening is familiar with the passage, but it's a very important one. It said it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive, not dwell, but not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his years shall be 120 years. So he's talking about the daughters of men cohabitating, not with the uh, sons of men, but the text is very specific. The daughters of men cohabitated with the B'nai Elohim, with the sons of God. And the term B'nai Elohim is used only in the Old Testament of angelic people, of angelic persons. Angels are persons. They're not human persons. We're higher than the angels. We'll judge angels someday, the Bible teaches. Uh, right now they have the upper hand, but there's coming a day when we will be reinstated to the original position God had for us over angels. In either case, um, you see an example like the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim are there in the presence of, of heaven and Satan has his conversation with God. And so there are many examples we could look at. And I might direct you to my sermon series in Genesis and you could click on the sermon for Genesis six. And I think I only got, I don't know, through the first eight verses uh, and you could listen to that message. But we have divine commentary in the New Testament on this verse. And so sometimes the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself when it comes to an Old Testament passage. Because sometimes when God references an Old Testament passage, then he's giving you his understanding of what actually took place. So there are two passages in the New Testament you could look at. One would be 2 Peter 2 and then the book of Jude. And they're kind of like parallel chapters. There's obviously only one chapter in Jude. 
there's three chapters in Second Peter, but the second chapter in Second Peter in the book of Jude are parallel passages. There are similarities between the two. And so Jude writes in verse five, now I re- desire to remind you, though you all, you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as the next verse says, just as, so there's a parallel between verse six of these angels who abandoned their natural abode that are actually been punished. They are in eternal chains, just like, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, they're both exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is telling us there's a parallel between a group of angels who left their natural abode and the men and women of Sodom who left their natural abode. And so there are these angels that took on our humanity and they cohabitated with the daughters of men. They had a sexual relationship with women. And the offspring were Nephilim, freaks of sorts, which may help me to understand the severity of the judgment that followed. Just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they left their natural function. Uh, Men with men, women with women, as Paul will specify in Romans 1, committing indecent acts. Uh, In 2 Peter, he makes this statement, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. He's talking about false prophets. Because of them, these false prophets, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. How do I know? How do I know God's going to deal with these false teachers or in the money for the ministry? For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. It did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So he's talking about a group of angels that God did not spare. And chronologically right after that, he comes to Noah's flood. So the parallel fits perfect with Genesis six. And so there was a group of angels who left their natural abode. As Jude says, Jude says they're in eternal bonds. Second Peter two says they are in pits of uh, darkness, they are in Tartarus, and it's a particular compartment of hell. So when you think of angels, there are different kinds of angels. There's holy angels, elect angels, and there's fallen angels. And amongst fallen angels, there's different groups of fallen angels. Some, like we studied recently in Daniel 10, who have absolute freedom to uh, wage war against God's people in the heavenly realm. And then these fallen angels that God did judge. In fact, they don't have freedom to wage war against Christians. They have been reserved for pits of darkness and judgment. And so um, God did judge the angels. And even the holy angels are going to be evaluated. God tells us in the book, uh, first letter of Corinthians, that we're going to judge angels, Christians just like we'll be judged as Christians, not to see if we get into heaven, but our rewards. So angels. Well, we're out of time. If you want to study that topic, go to my course on angelology at searchthescriptures.org or click on Genesis 6. Have a great day. 